0: Welcome to the Lovable Podcast. I'm Kelly Flanagan, clinical psychologist and author of Lovable, embracing what is truest about you so you can truly embrace your life. In this podcast, I'm walking with you each week for one year through Lovable's companion book, the year of listening, loving, and living. This companion book is currently available nowhere else, so I hope you'll join us on this journey, as together we recognize, reveal, and resurrect your truest, worthiest, most lovable self can't shake these lies, they keep running around in my head, but what if I saw me the way that you see me, what if I believed it was true, what if I traded this shame and self-hatred for a chance at believing. Welcome to the 37th episode of The Lovable Podcast. If you are tuning in for the first time, you could not be tuning in at a better time because this week we're going to be jumping into the next season of this year of listening, loving, and living. We're shifting our focus from revealing our true self and cultivating belonging to resurrecting our true self and cultivating our passion and purpose in this life. But first, let's make sure you've got a copy of my free ebook about marriage, It is called the Marriage Manifesto, Turning Your World Upside Down. It argues that the most rebellious thing you can do in this world is to get married and live that marriage the way it was intended to be lived, not as an end unto itself, but as a a place where the the two people come together to encourage each other, help each other discover their passions, and then encourage each other to to go out into the world to practice those passions. So you can get that at my website, drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com and sign up at the top of the right sidebar. You'll get the ebook right away and have an opportunity to sign up for my mailing list. And if you do that each week, you're going to get one email on Wednesday mornings with a link to this podcast and to my every other week blog post. Also, the comprehensive study experience for Lovable is almost ready, and I'm going to be giving it to you for free. So make sure you're signed up for that mailing list so you don't miss it. And last but not least, when you sign up, you'll also get a free sample of Lovable. Um, but of course, if you want more than just a sample of Lovable, you can go to LovableTheBook.com That's LovableTheBook.com to find out all about it. You can get it wherever you like to buy books and it's available in paperback, digital, and audio. All right, so that is it. Let's get into the months of living. The months of clarity about why we are here and what we are here to do. As always, thanks for listening in. Hello Facebook Live! Welcome to week 36 of the year of listening, loving, and living which is entitled, Why Wanting is the Way to Truly Living. Today, we are going to ask a question that can begin to clarify for you what your passion is and in what direction your purpose may lie. That question is, what do you want to do? (laughs) We are going to let that question lead us in the direction we are here to go. Before we get into this week's topic, though, let's check in. Last week, we took the kindness challenge. We talked about harnessing our competitive instincts, which are usually divisive, and to do with them something that might actually knit us together to compete at being kind. I'm curious to hear about your experience with that challenge. But today, more than ever, I'm curious to hear about what was most helpful to you during the months of loving, the four months we've spent just now cultivating belonging. Today, we'll be transitioning into the months of living, and this is one last chance to look back at your struggles and successes uh, in cultivating belonging before we look forward to cultivating our passion and our purpose. And while you're thinking about what you want to share today, um... You know, as I was preparing this episode and reflecting back upon all of these months of um, of loving, of cultivating belonging, and, and thinking about what was most impactful for me, and uh, and I go back to two weeks ago, and I don't think it's just because it was the most, one of the most recent things we talked about, um, but the practice. You know, the, the the episode is titled "Let's hold each other like we're dying." The practice of contemplating consistently. You know, not just for a moment, but consistently contemplating our mortality and the mortality of everyone around us, um, that has by far had the biggest impact upon me in these months of, of loving. And, and I'll say a little bit more as I've reflected upon that about why. Um, and it does have to do with the way that these three things that we've been talking about, worthiness, belonging, and purpose fit together. Um, and, and I found myself saying it to my wife, we're standing in the kitchen this week, and I said, uh, and our kids had been away at camp all week, and, uh, and so I was sort of watching the way I, I did my week and I, what I said to her was, um, it's so good that we have children because without them, I think my, my ambition and my passion for doing things and creating things, I think it would just carry me away. I would like from sun up to sundown, I'd be doing something and creating something. Um, I'd be practicing my passion, but there'd be no balance to it. Um, and and to me, that's like contemplating the mortality of my people is this reminder that time is precious. Um, and sure, you can spend sun up to sundown practicing your passion, but you're going to be missing. You're, you're missing some of the most important things in life. So it sort of restores a balance for me and it keeps my passion in check so that it doesn't become sort of unbridled ambition. Um, and, and so to me, that was another way that these, the, there's this transition that we're making from belonging to purpose, another way that they're connected. Um, and we'll talk more about that as we go. But, uh, but for me, that, that, that was the most impactful exercise of the, of the months of belonging. And I'd, I'd love to hear what, uh, what your reactions were to the practices and the ideas in these four months. Robin White writes, what a beautiful observation. Um, yeah well it was it was it was friday afternoon it was four thirty, and i'm at my computer just like you know still going and enjoying it and I'm like i think i without kids here on a friday afternoon start attending to i think i just work until 10 and um and that's great but um but there's also something something rich and rewarding about a life um that is in connection to other people too so anyhow it balances me out and uh Again, would love to hear what people people think. Karen writes, "What a perfect topic for my contemplation while I am rendered useless to work with back issues." Um, boy, I can I can relate to that, Karen. In fact, it was a ruptured disc in 2011 that really really changed my life. Um, I wrote about it somewhere. Uh, this experience of um, of being essentially, like you said, rendered inactive, rendered inert, literally not able to move, and being forced by the limitations of my body and by my pain to simply sit back and observe my people. Um, we are on a beach vacation, and uh, I... I couldn't be active on the beach, building sandcastles and digging holes and in the waves. And I literally the only position that was comfortable for me, was like in the fetal position on my right side. And I laid that way on the beach on the last day when I could finally get back out to the beach. And I just watched my people. And uh, it was a, um, you know, in many ways, a life-changing experience um, to be able to, number one, experience one's worth apart from one's actions. oh, I can't do anything and I'm still worthy. Um, and oh, all the stuff I do, I'm missing out on some things, doing the, doing those things. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I do hope that this, um, this idea is a, a sort of a rich and, uh, and, and growing contemplation for you as you're going through what you're going through. I'm so sorry. I, I just know that, it's, it's hard for anyone to understand uh, how painful it can be, what you're going through. Robin writes, when I get busy with tasks in the library and students coming in, sometimes another teacher will comment that it must be hard to get anything done, but truly, as a school librarian, the interruptions are the most important part of the job. That is awesome. I love it. <laughs> oh my gosh. There's there, you know Robin, you're, you're sort of pointing out that there's probably so many roles in life where the interruptions are really the most important stuff, right? Um, and that's that's exactly what I'm getting at here is that um, that we are about to enter into months where we talk about pursuing our passion and finding our purpose. Um, but if that is not done from the solid foundation, of a connection to our, our people, uh, to our circles of belonging and a sense that we continue to cultivate those as we go out and practice our passions then everything gets out of whack. Our priorities get out of whack again. So we don't want that to happen, right? Um, so thank you for that image that as a, as a librarian, you know, the interruptions from the kids are the main gig. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty cool reminder to all of us as parents and friends and colleagues and everything else carrie writes in the last two weeks two of my dear friends lost their mother wow the exercise to think of those we love with a terminal illness became very real i made the time in my busy schedule to spend time with my parents and kids i was more compassionate and kind um it's it's almost right i am sorry for your loss carrie but thank you for sharing it and and redeeming it a little bit by saying that like the, the it's almost impossible to go through an experience like that and not have your priorities snap straight, right? And, um, and so I think the challenge for us as human beings is not just to kind of react to moments like that, but to be proactive in cultivating an awareness constantly of our mortality, which will help to keep our priorities straight. And to recognize that we won't be able to do it all the time, you know, our, our, we'll get distracted, <laughs> we'll see, our priorities will get out of whack again, but try to return to that practice as, as consistently as we possibly can. Deb F. writes, as someone who also loves to write, I find that I can just keep going and going, completely oblivious to my surroundings. It's totally consuming and it's hard to stop the process. I find that if I don't push myself, I could totally isolate. Yep. There's a, there's a really, there's a poem, I think in Mary Oliver's most recent book where she says, um, Hey, if I show up late, celebrate with me that I was, that I was being creative. And if I don't show up at all, really celebrate with me. (laughs) And I love that idea. Um, but I also um, recognize the value of, um, you know, without, without the commitments, the, the, the really good commitments we have to people, um, a lot of us would just isolate and focus on our, our, our personal projects and, uh, and there's a healthiness to the balance. Borska writes, it is challenging to embrace this balance when in your work culture, there is a pressure to be overly busy and constantly work. This is true in the academic context. It is especially true in the academic context. There's this sort of myth going around that, you know, professors in the ivory tower just sort of have this, this cush life. But as the husband of a, of a college professor, um, for, uh, more than a decade, I can tell you the, the, the mantra publisher perish is very real. I mean, think about that. Uh, we're talking about trying to contemplate our human mortality um, in order to get our priorities straight. And, and in academia, that is sort of twisted into contemplate your career mortality. And you need to work harder to avoid the death of it. Um, and uh, yeah, and things can get really out of whack. Um, I mean, I think many of you know our story. My wife ultimately chose to exit that, that culture and uh, um, to, to pick up a different thread in her career. Um, because she was she was burning out she was fried and uh, and wanted to get her priorities straight again so anyhow um, it's so true and uh, and work work culture does not benefit from you having your priorities straight for the most part if we can find healthy places of work and places of employment where that balance is encouraged we should we should value them um, but if we don't if we don't have that um, we should certainly push back against it Brenda writes, I expected the months of loving to be going and doing for and with others. Instead, it's been lots of aloneness and forced reflection about mortality, priorities, and delayed passion, ambitions. A teaching, interjection, intervention, interruption. (laughs) Can I say that again, Brenda? A teaching, interjection, intervention, interruption. Laugh out loud. It's been a very different but great version of loving myself and my immediate family. Um, That is really beautiful Brenda. I know that you've been through a lot of limitations during these months of loving um, and you know in a way maybe those limitations have been as, as conducive to broadening your experience of belonging as anything. Um, you yeah, I remember uh, I remember it was years ago I got paired up with this really wonderful mentor who was a very successful and accomplished man. And uh, in our first meeting, I met with him and I asked him, if you have one piece of advice for me in my life right now, um, what is it? And he gave me the exact opposite of the advice that I thought I was going to get. He said, uh, he said Kelly, uh, don't, don't spend your time trying to save the world right now. Um, once your kids are grown and gone, there will be plenty of time for saving the world. And if there isn't, you've got bigger problems. Um, and, uh, and that just stuck with me. And it's, it's, it helped me. To, to reprioritize and to find that balance between belonging and passion, um, but I always end up getting out of whack and it, I have to rely on my kids and my, my care for them to, to sort of bring me back into, into, <laughs> into whack, <laughs> if, that's a, if that's a phrase. Caitlin writes, absolutely, I think nurturing your kids is saving the world, one little piece of the world at a time. Um, yeah, I think that's, I think that, yeah, Caitlin, I think it's how we sort of multiply our energies, right? Um, if we can do a good job of loving our kids, helping them learn how to love themselves, identify who they are, go out and, and be who they are in the world, um, well, if I've got three kids, then I've, I've multiplied my energies by three. Um, and so, uh, yeah, thanks for that affirmation. It's It definitely has straightened out the priorities. And, and you know, this focus on, um, on our places of belonging being something that balances out tempers our pursuit of our passion a little bit, keeps our priorities straight as we do that. It's not actually an idea that's really well-developed and lovable. It's really an idea that is arising out of this podcast. Um, in lovable, there very much is the idea that this, these, these tasks of embracing our worthiness, cultivating belonging, and, and practicing our passion, that they, they fit together in that sort of sequence. And so I want to revisit that idea. Um, and talk about how belonging and purpose fit together in the context of lovable, um, and and say that this this idea that we're developing here is just an additional idea about how belonging and purpose fit together. But you know the idea in lovable is that we end up trying to build places of belonging and pursue a passion in order to feel good enough. Um, we, we we seek a sense of worthiness from our relationships and our accomplishments. And so we first have to do the very, very foundational work of embracing our worthiness so that our places of belonging aren't a pursuit of or a seeking of a sense of worthiness, but more an expression of our sense of worthiness. Um, and so that's what, this, that's what we've been doing so far in this year of listening, loving, and living was um, practicing in very practical ways, ways of embracing our worthiness so that we could then go reveal our true self, our sense of worthiness to people and watch our circles of belonging begin to aggregate. So that's the idea, and now the idea is, and the idea developed in Lovable, is that we really need, we need our people as we begin to contemplate our passions and what we wanna, what purpose we want to pursue in our lives. We need our people. Um, they're the ones who help us clarify our passions because they see us clearly. Um, they're the ones who provide us opportunities for conversation about our passions and what we want to do in the world. They're the people who encourage us to pursue our passions. So our circles of belonging are really essential um, to this idea of cultivating, not really cultivating, but identifying our passions and pursuing our purpose. Um, So that's the idea in Lovable. That's why they fit together the way that they do. But I think this additional idea is really valuable, that once you're now pursuing your passions and your purpose, your priorities can get really out of whack because it's so much fun. Um, it's, it's, it's something you really enjoy, you believe in, you love doing. And, uh, and so it's important that we continue to keep that focus on our people so that our, our pursuit of our passion is balanced out by, um, healthy priorities in our relationships. So, Hey, there's multiple reasons that belonging and, and passion and purpose fit together the way that they do. And, uh, and now we are going to get into, um, we're going to get into the months of living, the months of, um, of pursuing the things we're passionate about, practicing them in the world, until we begin to get a clear sense of what we're here to do, what our purpose is, um, and how it all fits together. So we're gonna make that transition right now. So as we begin these uh, these months of living, um, the, the, the readings that we're gonna be getting into, particularly here at First in these months of living, they begin to parallel again closely. Um, the the content from lovable and i think it helps to have that context and understand what the parallels are um and so i'd like to take a moment just to read an excerpt from lovable today and uh and sort of give you the context for today's reading from page 177 of the paperback of lovable um it's about two pages into chapter 23 uh and this is the context the third act of life Like the third act of any good story is the part of your story in which the great dramatic question of your life finds some resolution in life that question is why am i here yet in life resolution doesn't mean conclusion it means clarity it isn't an ending it's ascending it is where you seize the opportunity the one that's always been in front of you though perhaps you haven't known it to craft a life revolving around something other than what you are good at doing or what other people tell you you should be doing It's an opportunity to start listening to the voice of grace inside you and the voices of grace around you, the people you belong to, the voices who want to see you do what you've always wanted to do with your life. So your third act doesn't begin with a skill. It begins with a little one inside of you who has a passion. So this transition to um, clarifying what our passions are very much harkens back to a lot of the work and the months of, of listening and embracing our worthiness where we are trying to get reconnected with that little kid within us Um, and embrace him or her Um, well now we're saying okay speak to us what have you always wanted to do Um, what uh, what can I learn from you about what you love what you enjoy what is fun to you and how can I begin to to live a life centered around that so um, that's sort of the context as we begin to get into this week's reading so here we go Uh, the months of living part 3 living identity resurrection Many persons have a wrong idea about what constitutes true happiness. It is not attained through self-gratification, but through fidelity to a worthy purpose. Helen Keller. Chapter 36. Why Wanting is the Way to Truly Living. It's a Saturday morning in early December, which means I'm sitting at the kitchen table with the kids, a cup of coffee, numerous toy catalogs, and a discussion about all the Christmas gifts they want. I'm annoyed by all the asking. It seems a little materialistic. So I decide to rain on their parade. I ask, which month do you like better, December or January? And of course, they all scream, December. So I ask, most of December, you don't have any new gifts. But in January, you have all your new toys. If the gifts are so great, why do you like December more? They roll their eyes and ignore me, and the stream of requests begin to flow again. As I listen, though, the stream of requests is my answer. What makes December so joyful for kids? They are given the freedom to want and to ask. You see, from an early age, we get taught not to ask. I do it to my children, usually when the asking piles up, can you reach this for me, can I have more ice cream, will you read me one more book, when can we play video games, can we go to the toy aisle? I subtly discourage the asking, with quiet sighs or my own eye rolls, or by getting up slowly and dramatically to grant the request. As children, we learn our wanting is a burden. School is organized around doing what you're told and suppressing what you want. It's all about raised hands and hall passes and a red stoplight in the lunchroom. The whole structure is designed to keep a kid from talking, wanting, and asking. Thank you, teachers who quietly subvert this. As children, we learn our asking is forbidden. So as adults, the joy of asking is replaced by a feeling of guilt. We feel guilty asking for raises. Asking our spouse to help around the house, asking a waiter to take back the wrong order, or asking the person with an overflowing cart of groceries if we can move ahead of them with our single carton of milk. We even feel guilty asking for help. Most clients arrive in therapy saying, I shouldn't need help like this. As adults, our wants get buried beneath a mountain of guilt and shame and frustration. We need to unearth them again. And when we do, we're going to discover our silenced requests are actually buried treasures. How can I be so sure? Because when we quit forbidding, and start encouraging our children to fully want, the things they want are utterly beautiful. In September, Aiden asked if he could continue his annual birthday tradition. Every year, in lieu of presents, he asks his friends to bring bags of food for the local food pantry. Every year, we take a picture of the kids standing amongst a pile of food for hungry people. Every year, in the photo, the kids' faces are plastered with joy. Aiden wants beautiful things. In October, Caitlin asked if she could cut out, color, and deliver invitations for her friends to donate to the local food bank so that disadvantaged families would have something to eat for Thanksgiving dinner. When we finally dropped the invitations into her friend's backpacks at school, her smile finally stretched from ear to ear. Caitlin wants beautiful things. In November, during the week before Thanksgiving, my kids went to a friend's house and packed lunches for the children in their school who wouldn't have access to their free school lunches over the week-long break. Quinn said he saw a kid carrying one of the lunches. He said it was the best part of his day. Quinn wants beautiful things. In the first weeks of December, my kids went shopping for Christmas gifts for the less fortunate children in their school. They bought basic items like shirts and coats and hats and gloves. While shopping, they used their own money to buy materials to create Christmas gifts for each other. Kids want beautiful things. So do adults when we give ourselves permission to want again. So do adults when we become like children again. At Christmas time, kids are joyful because we are giving them permission to be their truest selves and they teach us something about ourselves and about joy. Our wants aren't ultimately bad or selfish. Our wants, in the end, reveal the depths of love within us. We must plumb those depths. And then when we discover all the good and beautiful things we want, just waiting for a voice to make them real, we must start asking. You have things you've always wanted to do with your life, ways you've wanted to spend your days, passions you've wanted to practice, hobbies you've wanted to make a habit of, love you've wanted to spread in the form of a vocation, care you've wanted to give in the form of a calling. The things we want most are not ultimately material things, but purposeful things, patterns of living that feel meaningful. They are the deepest wishes of your truest self. You've recognized who you truly are. You've revealed who you truly are. Now, finally, it is time to resurrect your truest self in your daily life. So that is the reading uh, for the first week of the months of living of these months of resurrecting our truest self, um, of, of resurrecting that part of us that desires beautiful things, um, that wants good things um, for, um, for the world, um, that wants good things for our lives. Um, I, I remember the first time this concept was presented to me i was um, it was actually probably three weeks into blogging back in 2012 um, and i was at a small sort of private retreat where an author uh, named donald miller was speaking and he was telling a story about being in prayer one day and he said he was praying the same prayer he'd been praying to god for years he said "Uh, god what do you want me to do and uh and for the first time, he said, in um, in his whole life, God actually here I actually heard God respond, and uh, God's answer was, um, "I don't know, Don. What do you want to do?" <laughs> and he said, "No, no, 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 God. What? Well, I got your attention. What do you want me to do?" And God spoke to him again and said, "I don't know, Don. What do you want to do?" Um, and to me, this is this is one of the greatest moments of faith, to trust. Um, particularly for people of faith, that the good news is so good that, that um, the thing we're here to do is the thing we've also been created to enjoy. Um, it doesn't mean it won't be hard. It doesn't mean there won't be setbacks. It doesn't mean there won't be suffering along the way and crosses to pick up and carry, but that fundamentally, um, we have been wired to enjoy doing something, and that's the thing we're here to do. That's the good. It's that good. Um, and, uh, and Donald Miller was sort of discovering that in that spiritual experience that day and i think for me it opened my eyes to to a reality that i've um, over the course of years become to to trust as much as anything else so um, i'm asking you um, to sort of step into that faith in these months of living that um, that yeah actually you're the thing you're here to do is something you actually um, feel very um, joyful about doing something that makes you feel vibrant and alive um, and, uh, and it's the, the, the news about your life is that good. Brenda writes, this reading is so beautiful. Well, th- thank you, Brenda. Um, I think the idea is beautiful. It's not my idea. Um, I'm, I'm passing it along to you as I think that story just illustrates. And I'd be cu- you know curious to hear your reactions to that idea. Um, does that news seem too good to be true? Are there ways that you've already witnessed that that reality, that truth in your life and in others' lives, um, where the things that you want are are good and beautiful and that you enjoy them? Um, what uh, what what hits you about this reading? What stands out? Brenda writes, "Thanks for the Donald Miller story. Haven't heard that before. That's going on the family whiteboard today." <laughs> yeah, I've never seen him write about it anywhere. And um, you know, the interesting thing about that is that you know, kind of looking at the trajectory of his career. He actually went from uh, probably that was a you know an impetus for him moving out of actually a career that was focused entirely on writing and being an author and into a career as a business person um, and uh, and so yeah uh, it's a it's a dangerous question in the sense of if we if we think of our lives getting shaken up <laughs> and and changes happening and um, and things getting resurrected uh, it's sort of a, it's a provocative question we have to ask. Robin writes, when we can let go of what we feel we should do and instead embrace our passions, it's an incredible shift. Um, Robin, the, the way you say that uh, makes me think that you probably have experienced it. <laughs> You're not just speaking as a witness. Um, yeah, so in, in the, the passage that I read from Lovable, um, the story behind that passage, is I, and which is elaborated in the book, is um, I'm out to lunch. Uh, with my uh, oldest, who at the time was I don't know, was he in second or third grade? I think it says in the book, um, and his teachers told us that he's acting depressed in school, and I'm like sort of freaked out about that. So I take him out to lunch to ask him what's going on, and I sort of expected him to not really know what I was talking about, but he instantly said, "Dad, I, you know I'm good at school. It's the, it's my skill. It's the, you know I'm not the athlete. I'm not whatever, and I'm afraid I'm going to disappoint people by not doing my skill well enough." Um, and my response to him was, I, you know, I actually don't think, um, you know, I don't think God gives us our skills. Uh, I think we get those by accident. Uh, I think uh, we are given our passions. And uh, my, my response to him was, I think you have a passion for learning. Um, and what would, what would school look like if you approached it as a passion for learning, um, rather than this sort of, well, I should get good grades, I should succeed with my gifts, and so on and so forth. So... Um, so yeah, how can, we, how can we shift out of that mentality? Of, I don't want to disappoint people. I don't want to fail at the things I should be doing um, and instead really make that shift to embracing our, our passions. Um, by the way, two, especially in this part of this year, two like words we want to watch out for are should and supposed to. Um, because uh, when we start to think about what we're doing in the world, um, oftentimes a mantra that is running in our he- through our head is i should be doing this i'm supposed to be doing this um, and we want to catch that because usually there's some imperative of shame there, saying you'll only be worthy if you do that um, and we want to disrupt that um, we want we want our actions in the world to be arising from a sense of worthiness that says i'm worthy no matter what i do so now i get to do what i've been designed to want to do Robin adds, when I transitioned out of technical writing into education, I literally made half the money, but I got my life back. And there, I mean, and there it is, Robin. Um, and, uh, it's, it's been my experience too. I, uh, I, I see, I essentially, I work part-time now as a psychologist. Um, I make a lot less money than I could make. Um, but I, 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 think the way you said that perfectly captures my experience. I got my life back. Um, and, uh, That's the promise. That's the promise of these months is getting our lives back, truly living from our center, from our true self. Marielle writes, as a kid, at least for me, some ideas were said to be ridiculous. It's hard to imagine a passion from there, from that kind of feedback taken and absorbed since young. I mean, Marielle, yes, you are describing an experience that is so common to so many of us. Um, You know, the adults look at the things that we love to do and essentially say don't don't see you making a living with that right i mean as a parent it's understandable as a parent one of your main jobs (laughs) is to uh to to raise an independent individual right and so when you see a kid who has a passion that doesn't look like it can be monetized (laughs) parents sort of freak out and start to discourage it and um and we need to be aware of the ways we've been affected by those messages um you know my oldest came to us just about a year ago and said, I think I know what I want to be when I grow up. And I, I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be interesting. And he said, I think I want to be a stand-up comedian. And I'm like, I'm sure my first reaction wasn't great because his, his follow-up comment was like, or I could be a history teacher. You know, I'm sure he was seeing in my countenance. Um, some subtle discouragement of that idea because it's hard to imagine him making a, a career out of that. Um, since then, we've sort of repaired that and uh, we took him for his eighth grade graduation gift last week to a Second City uh, Comedy Club um, to, to communicate to him clearly that we'll support what he wants to do. Um, but he also knows his, pal- pa- his passion must always be balanced with a paycheck. Um, the main priority is becoming independent. And if he can practice his passion while he does that, we are all in. Borska writes, yes, we need to believe that we don't need to save the world. And through our passions and authentic self, we have plenty of opportunities to give enough to our family and friends, basically that we are enough. Um, yeah, it's another idea that gets developed and lovable, Borska, and I appreciate you bringing it up here, which is um, what we have to trust is not, it's my job with my passion to save the world. But if everybody practiced their passion, if every human being practiced their passion on the planet... Um, I have a deep, deep faith that all needs would be accounted for um, without anybody having to overextend themselves, burn out, become a workaholic, any of that. Um, and so we have our, you know, our our calling is to practice our passion and encourage others to practice theirs. Um, and that beyond that, we do not want to take too much responsibility for saving everything. Marie writes, when wanting and therefore the asking has been long suppressed, the little one is going to have a long moment of thinking silence to ponder. That's right. Yeah, I don't expect. I mean, let's think about this. This week we're going to start talking about this, um, but uh, this is a this process is going to play out over the course of the next four months. Okay, so no pressure to sort of get this all sorted out at once and immediately feel comfortable wanting things again. In fact, next week's. Um, reading is uh, addresses what will often happen when you start to give the little one within you permission to want again. Usually, the first reaction that I encounter is, "I got nothing. I'm not hearing anything. I don't know what I want to do." Um, and I've never experienced that to be true ultimately, but it's the first experience of trying to want again. Um, so next week we're going to be dealing with that roadblock when it comes up. Brenda writes, "That's good. Passions versus skills. No, I should have. Um, yep." And what you'll, you know, what you'll discover that, that is that passion isn't an activity. Um, passion is a way of engaging in activities. As often as it is doing one thing, it's a way of doing different things. Um, so what you'll discover, if you can be clear about your passion, is that um, there is a place where your passion eventually lines up with your skills. Um, but if you start from your skills, it's very hard to make the connection to your passions. Um, So we want to start with clarifying our passions, asking about what we want to do. Um, And at some point, almost always, um, that passion dovetails with with some things we're good at doing. Jennifer writes, I don't trust my passions because they don't care if I can make my house payment. (laughs) Uh, You know, you're right about that. Um, And that's why I say, when we talk about, with our oldest, when we talk about his passion for comedy. Um, we say, yes, passion is important, but it must always be balanced with a paycheck. Um, we see way too many young people these days who are sort of arrested in their development, stuck at home, because to them they say, if I can't practice my passion exact- in, its, in, its, in its fullest form, the way I totally envision it, then I'm, I, I'm not going to do anything. And uh, this is not about that. This is about saying, no. We need to honor our commitments. We have financial responsibilities, and we need to start asking ourselves what we want to do. That those two can go together. So let's let's sort of develop this discussion further by getting into this week's practice. And I and I love I love the the various angles at which you're coming at this discussion from already. Um, and I say this when I go out to speak to people that particularly when I'm speaking about um, this this third part of lovable passion and purpose i think this is where i have the most to add to the book and i think this is where the podcast will actually add the most to lovable um because there's so much nuance and complexity to all this um and there's and it's and it's all good news all of the nuance and complexity actually makes um us feel more peaceful about our passion and our purpose so i'm i'm thrilled with the way the conversation has started and looking forward to these next four months. So here's the first practice, the week 36 practice. Identity resurrection. The story says that when Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't just come to life and ascend into heaven. First, he put on his walking shoes. He walked out of a tomb. He walked through walls. He walked down roads and along beaches. He put on a new identity as a risen Christ, and then he walked around and made that identity tangible in the world. In the months of living, you are going to put on your walking shoes. You are going to start doing the things you've always wanted to do. You are going to carve the wood you've always wanted to carve, plant the garden, start the book, help the kids who can't help themselves, join the school board, volunteer at church or in the community or anywhere, sew, knit, buy a camera, set up an easel, whatever. You are simply going to continue recognizing your truest, worthiest self And with the support of the people you've revealed yourself to, you are going to start asking for and doing the things that arise from the truest part of you. This week, we're going to begin the months of living by making a Christmas list of your passions and never-done desires. List all of those things you've always wanted to do but never felt permission asking for. Try not to censor yourself. If you find yourself writing something down that feels not quite right, spend some time with it. Listen for the want that truly underpins it. Remember, you are asking for things you want to do, not things you want to have, because these months aren't about buying, they're about finally living. If it's hard to immediately put your finger on a passion you've suppressed, start with any nagging desire you've suppressed, and make a list of those desires. Is it reaching out to an old friend, visiting a cemetery to decorate the grave of a loved one, traveling to your hometown, telling someone you love them, going for a walk, make your list of unlived wants, then do one. It doesn't matter how little or inconsequential it might seem. Resurrecting your life doesn't happen all at once. You have to take small steps at first. Loosen your joints up a little. Stretch yourself and limber up slowly. Go for it. Live just one longing you haven't been living. Let the resurrection begin. So that is the practice for this week. And I want to actually just develop it a little bit further with an experience I had last week. So I had, I was sort of preparing this episode, um, you know, pulling in the different... The different content into a document. And, uh, and then I, because the kids were away at camp, I had a little bit of free space. Um, and, um, I just, I just took a pause, you know, sort of along the lines of that last piece. And I said, what, what do I want to do right now? What do I, what is, what does my truest self want to do? And the, the most bizarre thing came up. <laughs> um, I, I tried not to censor myself and what I wanted to do was I wanted to go out uh, and skip rocks in the river where I used to skip rocks as a kid. The most bizarre, like, where did that come from? And so I did it. Um, and I haven't felt that peaceful in a long time. So, you know, as we begin to just sort of let ourselves want again, this does not need to be about, like, what what career do I really want? Or, you know, um, what dramatic, what town do i want to move to it doesn't need to be on that scale it needs to simply be what is i need to practice wanting again what do i want right now um that would be good and beautiful and peaceful what would that look like so that's my encouragement to you this week is is start small let those small subtle desires that are constantly sort of tapping on our hearts um, sort of open the door to one or two of those um, as you begin to make a list of all of them deb f says an uncensored passion wish list i'm so doing this <laughs> uh, oh i'm i hope i hope you do i'm gonna do it i'm i'm i've done this before i'm gonna do it again um and this is you know we'll get to this at the end of these months of of living um, we'll talk about how the sequence from worthiness to belonging to purpose doesn't just happen once it cycles um, but as you come to a new cycle in your life and you ask yourself all over again, what are my what are my passions, my unlived passions, you'll discover new clarity about what they are, new passions making the list, new nuance to the ones that you have already listed. Um, and I do think it's time for me to do it again too. I'm eager to see what comes up and a little bit nervous about what might come up because <laughs> I like things how they are right now. <laughs> Robin writes, I am living in this resurrection of desire right now. I'm in California visiting my adult child who I placed for adoption at birth. I followed my heart, which had been whispering to me for years, to find them. So one day I did, and it is beautiful, more beautiful than I ever imagined. Um, Robin, you are doing it. You're doing it. Uh, Robin, you you asked yourself, is this the career I'm truly passionate about? And the answer was no. And you went and you changed careers. You, you asked yourself, what is... What's this thing that I've been longing for for so long? It's reunion. It's redemption of what happened. It's it's reconnection. And you went and did it. Um, you are not shying away <laughs> from the resurrection. And it's a, a beautiful, a beautiful example to all of us and an inspiration to us. I think. Um, at the same time, I'm gonna say for everybody listening, that there there'll be folks out there who that'll be daunting for, right? Like because our shame is immediately gonna creep into this process too, and it's gonna say. Well, if me pursuing my passions and my wants doesn't look as extraordinary or as inspiring or as incredible as, as person A's, then they, they're not good enough. And, um, and that's why it's so essential to, to, to always be going back to that process of embracing our worthiness because your passions are yours. They were given to you. Um, what they look like in the world isn't really up to you. Um what is up to you is identifying them and being faithful to them and practicing them. And whatever that looks like is fine because you're worthy. Doesn't have to doesn't have to be extraordinary, doesn't have to be inspiring. It just gets to be you. Um that's the really good news. Robin adds, it only took ten years of therapy. <laughs> that is such a, a grace for all of us. Um like yeah. You know, if you start to feel like, oh my gosh, um, I don't know if I have the courage to follow my passions. Well, identify them, give yourself 10 years of therapy. Um, and I bet by the end of it, um, you'll be doing it. So um, that's that's good stuff, Robin. Thanks for that, Grace. Sashi writes, I already know what's going to be on the top of the list. Um, that's awesome, Sashi. And that the experiences will range. Like um, for some of us, when we give ourselves that permission, um, we, we, we already know, you know, we talked a couple of weeks ago about the secrets we keep from ourselves. Um, our passions are one of those secrets. There's something we know we've been wanting to do. We just haven't given ourselves permission to pay attention to it. So for some of us, yeah, that passion will jump right out. Um, for others of us, it might be that other experience of like, I'm coming up with nothing, but, but, but give it, give it your attention this week, um, and see what happens. Trius writes, when priority cuts off pursuit, sometimes you come to this place as I was a couple summers past, kayaks, skydiving, etc. things I wanted for me, the life being life, greater priorities came my way, struggling to avoid depression as my pursuit is stifled. This is a really important um, thing to share with us, Trius, because a, a lot of people, a lot of people are going to feel exactly what you're feeling. It's going to feel frustrating. Um... And this, this is what I'd suggest, um, and we're going to be talking more about that in these months, um, that like if you, if, if I, if I was sitting down in a, a room with you and you were telling me all my passions have been stifled by my life and my priorities and all my obligations, um, I would, I would take the things, just the first two things that you mentioned, kayaking and skydiving. And I'd say, it sounds to me like you're confusing activities with passions, Um, And what if your passion wasn't kayaking specifically or skydiving, but your passion was adventure and risk? What would it look like to start to work that passion into your everyday pursuits? Um, What would it look like to invite that passion to make itself known, to to begin to live your day-to-day life more as an adventure um, and more as a challenge? What would that look like? Um, There might be a way to transform your life from the inside out by practicing that passion. So that this idea that if I can't, if I think my passion is something I wanna do, and I I can't do that thing, right? Um, Then I can't practice my passion. Um, I believe very strongly that everyone can practice their passion in almost any given situation, um, in almost any activity. And so we wanna identify the passion that is deeper than an activity passion that is sort of given rise to by an activity um, and so that, that's a, a way to think about it more broadly and to begin to, to, to loosen up some of that frustration Trieste. And we'll love to hear as these months go forward what that looks like for you Marielle writes how does one differentiate passion from impulse what a great question um, my first response to that is that actually a passion is usually something um, that feels the opposite of impulsive. A passion is something that sort of wells up in us and we say, I really want to do that. Oh, but that's, I'm not so sure about that. It does, it's not very productive. It's uh, uh, I'm not sure how that fits into what, where I'm wanting to head with this day or my life or whatever. And so we sort of push it down and then a month later it's back and we push it down again and a month later it's back and we push it down again. Um, that you've, you've connected with a passion when you've connected with this thing you want that just won't go away. Um, and uh, impulses tend to be more one-off experiences. Impulses tend to be things that we... Um, uh, there's not a lot of complexity to our thought and our desiring of them. Um, it's, a, it's a sort of a thoughtless act that we do. Um, Whereas practicing a passion is a very thoughtful pursuit. Um, It's usually not a one-off experience. It usually begins to to reveal a path for us. Um, So I think that they are sort of opposite in a way. And uh, to the extent to which we sort of confuse those two words, things we're passionate about and things we do impulsively, we we do want to disentangle those words. I hope that helps a little bit. And if others have thoughts, I'd love to hear them. Deb F. writes, I would think impulse would eventually wear itself out is i think what you meant to say um yeah yeah um impulse isn't sustainable right you might say well every night at five o'clock i have an impulse to have a glass of wine that must be a you know that must be a passion of mine because it keeps coming back um yeah well impulses typically wear you out they they aren't sustainable over the long haul they don't make your life richer um more beautiful um they don't increase a sense of goodness and And wholeness to your life, they sort of do the opposite. Whereas passions are um, things that we live sustainably, um, and things that increase a sense of depth, richness, and meaning in our lives. So I I think that's a very good distinction, Deb. Triest adds, I would think an impulse passes in time, but passions keep nagging. Yeah, that's I think that's a that's a pretty clear distinction. Um, And when an impulse becomes habitual. You know, usually it's an addiction. so and and usually it's not so hard. it's it, it's not easy to confuse addictions and passions. Those are pretty different things. So, um so yeah, an impulse either passes or if it becomes habitual, it becomes an addiction, whereas a passion practice regularly becomes a sense a sense of purpose. So they end up in very different places. Okay, everybody, what a really, what a great start to the months of living. Your energy and enthusiasm and fearlessness is uh, is just. So encouraging. Um, Next week, we'll go a step further with these ideas, as I said earlier, by dealing with whatever confusion or uncertainty might have arisen in the middle of this exercise. So if it becomes a frustrating week for you, don't worry. Tune in next week. We're going to talk about that. It'll be week 37 of the year of listening, loving, and living, which is entitled, When You Think You Don't Know How You Want to Live. Until then, remember, you are lovable, so that all that's left to do is live from that truth. Thanks again for joining us on the Lovable podcast. Remember, this companion book can stand on its own, but it stands a little taller and a little stronger on the shoulders of Lovable. So if you have not picked up a copy of Lovable yet, it is available wherever books are sold, and you can get it in paperback, digital, or audio format. If you'd like to simply download a sample of Lovable, you can go to my website, drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com. In the right sidebar, Sign up to receive my blog post by email, and you will immediately receive a free sample of Lovable and a free copy of my ebook, The Marriage Manifesto. The music for the Lovable podcast is courtesy of Ellie Holcomb and is entitled Wonderfully Made from her album, Red Sea Road. Until next week, friends, remember, you are lovable.